Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that you continue to be God and Creator and Sovereign, and that you provide a basis of truth, a basis on which we can trust and be an object of our faith, and that through Jesus Christ you have cleansed us from our sins, that we may have a relationship with you. We ask tonight that the Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to His Word, in Christ's name. Um, in your notes, this is going to be the second of three or four uh, Thursdays that we d- uh, go through the millennial issue or the eschatology or the future events. And we do this because when Christ comes back, uh, when Christ comes first time in the Gospels, uh, he comes as a king. And there's a big issue in the Gospels over what kingdom is the king coming to? What is the king's agenda? So that's why it was a good opportune time. Besides, some have asked, well, do we ever get into eschatology in Thursday nights? Well, here it is. Um, On page one and two of the notes, just to review, I wanted to again show you that before we get into the three views tonight, in the section of notes that was just handed out, we're going to actually get into that too tonight. Um, We hoped by the end of tonight to cover all three of the major views. The pre, the ah, and the post-millennial view. Um, on page one of the notes, I gave you a diagram there to show you that before the Gospels, before the New Testament, there was a debate going on in Jewish circles over when the triumphant kingdom of God would occur. Would it occur and then have after that the resurrection and the judgment, or would the triumphant kingdom of God actually be a synonym for eternity? Now, Looking at it in a larger scope, let's go back to our diagram here of uh, evil and good and the issue of uh, where history is going here. Because eschatology has to do with part of this um, part of this diagram. And for those who demean eschatology and think this is just a peripheral issue, I remind you that if one doesn't deal with the eschatological events, then that's all you have as far as the Christian position. That is, that you go through this period where good and evil start with a fall, it's mixed, and then something happens. And it's just something happens. And that's what happens if you don't get into eschatology. It's a very vague something. And so eschatology is the study of the last things And it's to fill in how that separation occurs. In other words, it's like we we zoom in on this issue of how does God get to the point where good and evil are separate. And the, the issue of the triumphant kingdom of God, in terms of this diagram, is does good and evil separate enough so that you can see it politically, socially, in that way. Now, good and evil separate, begin the separation in our souls at the point of regeneration and then with resurrection. But that's all individual. The issue with a kingdom is, is it ever corporate? And, and by corporate, we don't mean just that you get more than one Christian in the vicinity. We're not just talking about a group of believers. We've always had groups of believers down through history, but we haven't had the kingdom triumphant all down through history. 
So the issue then is, is good and evil, does this separation thing ever going to happen in our present history in a dramatic political and public way? That's what's going on here in this kingdom issue. And we said last time, page two, that there are basically these three viewpoints. And those viewpoints are the premillennial, the amillennial, and the postmillennial. Sometimes it's bad, I guess, that it got so, the, the whole issue here got so um, wrapped around the axle with the word millennium. Um, but I don't, you know, that's the way the vocabulary has come about, so we have to go to stay with it that way. But if you look at these diagrams, figure two, you'll notice that postmillennial and amillennialism is pr are pretty closely related. Um, Postmillennialism has been described as optimistic amillennialism. And, and what we mean by that is if you look both at the amillennial view and the postmillennial view, you have Christ's judgment and eternity begin, and you really, in the amillennial position, never really have a kingdom. If you do, it's sort of spiritualized as the existence of the church. Um, in the postmillennial view, some of the postmills really are looking forward to a triumphant kingdom and the other ones are just saying, well, history's going to get better kind of thing. So there's, there's a lot of variations within amillennial and postmillennialism, but in premillennialism you will not find many variants. Premillennialism tends to be a very defined position. Amillennials and postmillennialism do not. They tend to flutter all over the road here. So that's why it's a little difficult for me in three or four pages to give you a, an accurate and honest portrayal of these positions, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try by using that chart in the bottom of page two and use three checkpoints and show you how each position answers those questions. So we've picked out as our checkpoints, one, Christ's return to end history, yes or no? When Christ returns, is that the end of history and the beginning of eternity? Looking up on figure two, you see clearly that all millennialism and postmillennialism say yes. Yes, when Christ comes back, that's the end of history and the beginning of eternity. The second question, is the kingdom ever to triumph over world culture? And in that, you can see the postmillennial and the premill have the triumphant kingdom of God out ahead of eternity. The triumphant kingdom of God happens inside history. And then the third question is, evil is not to be greatly reduced before Christ's return. And that's because in premillennialism, Christ's return is sort of split into two parts. The return prior to the triumphant kingdom of God and then his judgmental work at the end of that period of time. And since his return precedes the triumphant kingdom of God, then evil remains until that point. That is, social evil. Okay, so that's the, that's the, the um, scope of the, of the controversy. And basically, those are the three positions. Actually, when you look at it logically, those are the only three possible possibilities anyway. Okay. Now, we w last week, we introduced premillennialism. And I'm trying to show you, um, not by way of argument, for one position or the other. We're going to get into that. But what I'm trying to show in this original, the, the, in the pages 3, 4, and 5 of the notes here, what I'm trying to show you is that these ideas are not incidental. They are not to be trivialized. They're not to be laughed at as some sort of esoteric, theoretical thing. These ideas very powerfully shape 
our view of the believer's relationship to society. They powerfully impact how we view our own personal futures. And down through history, they've had powerful impacts. So tonight, as I go through these three views, I want to leave you. This is not an ad hominem argument that I'm using here. I'm just using a historical point that ideas have consequences. Good ideas have good consequences, and bad ideas have bad consequences. But consequences, they all have. Can't stop the consequences. See, we as individuals can choose. God has given us a chooser. He's given us the ability and the responsibility to make choices before Him. But one thing we do not have freedom is, after we make the choice, we can't dictate what the consequences are going to be. He's already dictated the consequences. Whatsoever you shall reap, that you also sow. Or whatsoever you shall sow, that you also reap. So the consequences are always built into the system. We can elect this or we can choose that. And, and God ordains the ends. So I want to show you in premillennialism, uh, last time I guess we got over to page four or five, that it had a pre-Christian Jewish history and then on page 4, we dealt with a Christian history. And part of that Christian history on page 4 was that it is associated down through the church with a Jewish view. The pre-millennial position historically has always been pro-Jewish. Why is that? Let's back up a minute. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. Ideas have consequences. And let's look at this idea and some of its consequences. The idea of this kingdom that is to come, that the Messiah will bring it in, and we will have a thousand years in history of his reign. This kingdom of the Messiah is defined by Old Testament prophets. Now, when did the Old Testament prophets look forward to this idealized kingdom? Well, they looked forward to it in those ages. Remember, God is always prepared. God administers history pedagogically. One historic age follows another because God is teaching man history. But we're part of the drama. We're in the classroom. And down through the Old Testament, God set up the idea of the kingdom. Here's the Exodus. The kingdom is going to be something that disrupts fallen civilization. So we call it the disruptive kingdom. The kingdom is always out of character with the fallen creation. The kingdom is always out of character. It's always a square peg in a round hole, insofar as the fallen creation exists. But the answer and the counter to the objection is, that's because the fallen creation in itself is out of kilter with the original creation under God. So now we have a kingdom that's out of kilter with a, cre with a fallen history that's out of kilter with God. So that's why you have a disruptive kingdom to a fallen creation. Then you have the call of Abraham, the Exodus, and Sinai. Remember what happened here? Whose law was being given at Sinai? It was the king, King Yahweh. And he gave his rules to his people who were defined to be Jewish or Gentile? Jewish. So this kingdom is defined in Jewish terms all down through this period. 
and you come down here into the conquest and settlement, and it, remember, it aborts. What happened? The people became disloyal, did not claim the promises, and what did God say? I'm not going to drive out the, the Canaanites for, before you, you know? You people don't want to trust me with so okay, have it your way. And so they had it their way. And then they groaned and they wanted to deliver because they still viewed not living in the kingdom as abnormal because they, they knew that God had promised them this kingdom in the future of peace. Then we come down to the rise and reign of David and David becomes a revelation, he and Solomon and the subsequent kings, that not only are the people fallen, remember the people, book of Judges, now the rise and reign of David with all the kings, now the leaders are fallen. So by the time you get to that period of history that we studied last year, when the king started administering his severe discipline, by that time it became very obvious to all that to have the kingdom, you had to do something with sin. There had to be some radical changes on both the part of the people and the leaders. People always like to blame leaders. Leaders always like to blame people. God blames both. The Old Testament history is a comprehensive indictment of both people and leaders. Not one, not the other, both together. So, the kingdom goes into decline. There's the exile and the partial restoration. And it's that context during this period of the exile where the prophets write, the kingdom in decline, the prophets write. Who's writing in here? Remember? Who are the, big, the two big giant prophets that are writing right during this period of time? Isaiah and Jeremiah. And who's the great prophet who also wrote a book as big as theirs that nobody reads anymore? Here. His name begins with the same letter as the exile, so you would remember it. Ezekiel. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all writing in this period. They're the guys that talk about this kingdom. So what was the what was the what was the thing that they were? To, where was their neighborhood? Where are they living when they were talking about the kingdom? They were living right here. What had they just seen? Fall and collapse of their country. So if they were looking forward to a kingdom, it's being defined in terms of something that's going to happen this time and be successful and triumphant. So that's why we talk about the triumphant kingdom of God versus the defeated kingdom of God in the Old Testament. So premillennialism means pre, before the kingdom, that the Messiah must come to bring that kingdom in because the people can't bring it in and the leaders can't bring it in. So it's a very simple picture and that's why premillennialism doesn't have 85 different versions. Premillennialism basically has one version, well, one or two. Not much many different versions. Now, what happened on page four here, I mentioned that um, in mainline Catholicism tended not to, to oppose premillennialism. Uh, and the reason in the previous paragraph is because philosophically you had Origen and Augustine were the theologians that dominated that period of church history. Fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh centuries were dominated ideologically by those two guys basically Augustine. And then came Thomas Aquinas, and Thomas Aquinas, of course, uh, he, he believed that God and man together would reason their way along. Thomas believed that you were fallen from the neck down, that the fall did not affect rationality, 
And so therefore we could borrow from the pagan mind and then on to the pagan. The pagans would have truth. And so you build truth from, the, from just normal reasoning, unaided. The natural man, the unregenerate man, can reason correctly. And then, based on the foundation that he reasons correctly, then we add to that Jesus. And we add to that the Word of God. So that's the idea of the Thomistic thought. Well, this whole idea, the kingdom became, in pagan mind, to be kind of ethereal. It had to be abstract. It couldn't be material and physical because the matter and, and so on were evil. The other problem in, pa in that paragraph I point out, and that's critical, is that the church was becoming more desirous of disassociating itself from Jewish culture. Hebrew Christians were required to give up all their Jewishness in order to belong to the church. Now, see, what is happening in this idea is that the kingdom, which is now viewed, here's the cross of Christ on a timeline, we have the church. Slowly the idea takes effect that the church kind of replaces Israel insofar as the kingdom is concerned. Israel was sort of like a, a, a mother that gave birth to something. But now that the baby's here, we can throw out the mother. And so all attention is now on the, on the baby and not on the mother. And so Jewish culture and everything else is simply discarded. It's, it's thrown away as a, as a sort of a cocoon that's just left over in history, sort of debris that's left over from early ages. So this carries implications. Now, we're going to move on to, um, on page five, we, we, I guess we ended right here last time, um, the confessions of the Protestants after the Reformation. And you'll notice that in the top of page 5, the second Helvetic Confession, chapter 11, it says, We condemn the Jewish dreams that before the day of judgment there shall be a golden age in the earth. There's the kingdom. Before the day of judgment. Before the day of judgment. The millennial kingdom, the triumphant kingdom will happen before eternity. It will happen inside history. But that is considered by the church, by the Protestants, as a Jewish dream. So both the Protestants and the Catholics went along with basically an anti-premillennial position. And the next paragraph, I'd like you to read with me as I go through it, because so few of us today know our church history very well. And that's one reason why we really don't know our own identity. It really helps. Someday, someday it would be so great to just have a nice church history course because it, all of a sudden you realize some things you do and some things we don't do. Where did all that come from? Well, just follow this paragraph for a minute. In more modern times, now I'm, I'm listing here for you men in church history who were champions of premillennialism. Okay? My objective is to show you that it's not one denomination. This is not, we're not talking denominations here. In eschatology, it was a thread that, that passed through many different denominations. And here are the men. John Milton. Anybody know John Milton? We used to study him in, in English literature back before when you could do that. And you studied reputable authors and not some slugs from the 20th century. John Milton. John Wesley. Increase Mesa. Now, in Wesley we all know. 
father of Methodism. Increase Mather and Cotton Mather. Anybody know where they were? They were Puritan pastors in Boston. They were people that lived during the time of the um, crucible that we always get features in high school English classes. The one thing that all high school students remember about the Puritans is that they uh, had all that witchcraft stuff going on. Don't ever get exposed, of course, to what the Puritans really believed. In fact, these two guys, Increase and Cotton, were the pastors that tried to get hold of that thing. But the view you get of the Puritans of the Crucible, just remember who wrote the Crucible, Arthur Miller. That's all you have to know. Franz Delich. Franz Delich was the leading Old Testament conservative commentator in the 19th century. To this day, Franz Delich's commentaries, Kyle and Delich, if you hear about it, you read it at the Christian bookstore, uh, Kyle and Delich, well, Delich, in that, in that duet of, of authors, that's the Delich. And he was a pre-male, so was Kyle, by the way. Dean Alford. Dean Alford was one of the few exegetes in the Anglican Church in England. So I want you to look at that. You've got John Milton, English Puritan. John Wesley, a Methodist, Englishman. Increase Mather and Cotton Mather, Puritans, we would say Congregationalists. Franz Delich, I believe he was Lutheran. Dean Alford was Anglican. Philip Schaff, I'm not sure what Philip Schaff was. Uh, Philip Schaff was one of the great church historians. He wrote one of the standard histories of the church, Philip Schaff have been premillennial scholars. By 1878, when American fundamentalists held their first interdenominational conference at Church of the Holy Trinity, now please notice that sentence, for those of you not acquainted with church history, get the date. Is that before or after the Civil War? It's after the Civil War, before World War I. That period between the Civil War and World War I in this country was when the fundamentalists began to battle against the liberalism in the church. It was in those years that the war, it was a war between fundamentalism and modernism began, and it came through World War I on into, and we'll see more about the war later. It was a tremendous war. No student today in school ever learns about this battle. And yet, this is the battle that explains a lot about American history in the 20th century. It's completely ignored, absolutely ignored in history courses. I never got trained in it until I started reading church history and then I started looking at original source material. I look at newspapers carried this stuff on the front pages. And where do you ever hear it? Just like it's disappeared. It's, a, it's sort of an invisible chapter to our whole national culture. Nobody knows about it anymore. Many teachers... And, and so the fundamentalists, how the fundamentalists first started working is they got all the people from different, different congregations together, different denominations, and they said, look, we differ maybe on baptism, we differ here, and we differ there, but there's one thing we don't differ, and that's the authority of Scripture. And we don't like these higher critics coming over here from Europe with their PhDs telling us you can't believe the Gospel of John because John didn't write it. Any one of a billion people that lived at the time could have written it, but we know definitely John the Apostle couldn't have written that. That we do know for certain. Don't know anything else, though. So they said, we're tired of this stuff. So they all got together. And in 1878, that was their first conference. So there's a date for you to kind of lock it in on your concept of church history. They held their conference, and notice where they held it. 
Guess what denomination that is? Church of the Holy Trinity in New York City. It's Anglican. Episcopalian Church. So, when people talk about fundamentalists being these little Bible churches out in the, in the boonies somewhere, hey, wait a minute. Reread your church history, friend. What did it say? It said all these denominations at one time had fundamentalists in them. Okay. Premillennialism began a comeback. A comeback from when? Come back from the first and second century. So something began to happen in this country 25 years before World War I. And that was inside the church, those people who honored the authority of Scripture began to gravitate toward premillennialism. We'll see why later on. Many teachers from the Reformed Episcopal, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, and Anglican denomination insisted at this conference that premillennialism was the logical outcome of the literal Protestant interpretation of Scripture. One of the speakers was Nathaniel West of Cincinnati, Ohio. He explained why Reformers dealt very little with eschatology. West brought to light a central claim of both orthodoxy and fundamentalism ever since his day. And that claim was that the emphasis of the Reformers was in the area of salvation, justification by faith, and in other great doctrines of grace. Doing such valiant service, they could not give the proper time and study to the vast area of eschatology. And that is why Protestantism and Catholicism, there's no difference between them in eschatology until the 1800s. And then, inside Protestantism, you begin to have this attraction for eschatology. The Holy Spirit awakes the church to develop this area of doctrine that had laid latent for centuries. Okay, here are the features of premillennialism. And before I get to the features, I want to read you a little story of what actually happened in Germany to, give, to show you that these ideas have consequences. This is written from Hal Lindsey's book, The Road to Holocaust. In an unusual turn of providence, I learned firsthand what some of the early plans of the Nazi leaders were. Oh, let me back up a minute. Um, Let me read you this quote. Guess who wrote this one. Hence today, I believe that I am acting in accordance with the Almighty Creator by defending myself against the Jew. I am fighting for the work of the Lord. Adolf Hitler, in his book, Mein Kampf. Where did this come out of in the German soul? What had Luther done in his dying days? He wrote vicious tracts against Jews. So Hitler was really borrowing on this anti-Semitism that had been embedded in German culture. Okay. Um, here is a person who was talking to... Um, it was an interview, basically, with um, Hal Lindsey. He is an evangelical who came out of Germany. Listen to what he says. He's an old man, probably dead now, but he lived through those years of the rise of Adolf Hitler. In an unusual turn of providence, I learned firsthand what some of the early plans of the Nazis' leaders were from one who was an eyewitness. A Christian friend who was born in Germany related to me some of the secret negotiations conducted by Adolf Hitler and his top party leaders before they assumed control of Germany. My father's friend was the head of the German officers' army union, which in English is called the steel helmet. 
Hitler, Hess, Goring, Dr. Goebbels, and many other top Nazi leaders came to my friend's Bavarian home to negotiate with his father. His father being having a lot of political clout because he was in the German army, and not just the German army, but the officers that controlled the German army. So obviously Goebbels, uh, Hitler, Hess, and Goring were very interested because they were not in the military. These guys were all civilians. So they came to my friend's Bavarian home to negotiate with his father. Hitler desperately needed the support of the German Army Officers Union to grab control of the government. My friend remembers many long and heated discussions around the fireplace between his father and the future leaders of the Third Reich. His father actually agreed with Hitler about many of the reforms that he wanted to bring to Germany. But when he began to grasp Hitler's final solution, quote, end quote, plan for the Jews, he flatly disagreed. He was an evangelical Christian, a Plymouth brethren who believed in a literal interpretation of prophecy and the covenants God made with the Israelites. In other words, he was a pre-millennialist in his beliefs concerning Bible prophecy. One, this is the head now of the union of all the officers in the German army. So this isn't some little sleaze bag out here. One of the fundamental elements of a premillennialist faith is that God has bound himself by unconditional covenants to the Jews and that even though they are currently under his discipline, he will punish anyone who mistreats them. As God swore to Abraham and confirmed to his successors, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. At considerable personal risk and financial loss, this man packed up his family, sneaked out what money he could, and came to the United States of America. He left Hitler's Germany for one fundamental reason. He believed God's word when it said concerning Israel, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Interesting story. And you see, I wanted to read this to you just to show you that here's a guy who had a defined position eschatologically and changed his life. All right, we're going to look now at some of the features on page five of premillennialism. We studied Revelation last time, Revelation 19 and 20. That's that key passage. Christ's return does not end history. Dead believers are resurrected to reign in Christ for a thousand years. Um, let's go to Revelation 20, just so that those of you who are not familiar with this passage, You'll know where it is in the Bible and can refer to it. This is at the end of the end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and following. If you'll just kind of follow with me. I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over so he could not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were completed after those, these things, he must be released for a short time. Now you notice one of the corollaries to the existence of the kingdom of God in history? What is it? What is it that's thwarting its presence now? It's the presence of Satan. So, 
when we get to the amilism and postmillennialism, this is the question you want to deal with. Well, what then? How do you interpret this passage? Okay. I saw thrones and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead upon their hand. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And as we said last week, that last sentence in verse 4 shows you that the view here is that these people are in resurrected bodies who are reigning in immortal history with people who don't have resurrected bodies. Some real things to think about here. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection, and blessed and holy is he who has won the part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up in the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was bound for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne. The books were open, another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books, according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to his deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any more sea. And so on, and he goes to describe the beginning of the eternal state. Okay, so Christ's return, in this case, does not end history. Jesus Christ comes into history... He reigns for a thousand years, and then at this point, eternity begins. That's premillennialism. Second point, the kingdom of God will triumph over world culture. That's down at the bottom, page 5. If you'll turn to Isaiah 65, halfway through the Old Testament, we'll see how Isaiah conceived of this future kingdom. Isaiah chapter 65. You'll look at um, 17, Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad with my people. The voice of weeping and the sound of crying will no longer be heard in her. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. By the way, it's a refutation of socialism here. Evidently, capitalism prevails. For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my chosen one shall wear out the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offsprings of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. 
The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall do no harm or evil in all my holy mountain. That's how Isaiah thought of this kingdom. And the debate, of course, is, is this eternity or is this inside history? And one of the striking things about this passage is that death has not been removed. So, the question then is, in the Old Testament prophetic idea, people still die. It's just that life is prolonged in this new kingdom to come. Okay, on page six, we go to the third feature. Oh, and by the way, uh, before we get to that third feature, on page six, you'll see a quote I have from Alva McLean. Alva McLean was a great teacher of the Word of God at Winona Lake many, many years. Um, he wrote a book that's probably one of the finest books ever written on the kingdom, and you can't even find it anymore. It's called The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva McLean. Anyway, what McLean is addressing here is, if we really believe this, and there's going to be a thousand years of perfect history on earth, then what happens if you are an artist, or you are a musician, you are a... Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach or somebody and you're creating great work of art unto the Lord at this point in history. What's the relationship? Why should you be motivated if basically this era of history that you're in doesn't go anywhere? Well, the answer premillennialism has and this is something that you want to notice because I'm quoting from McLean. This quote's been around for two or three decades and it's inexcusable that after 20 or 30 years of this quote being around, we still have people, critics of premillennialism, say, oh, premillennialism is so pessimistic, it has no area for the arts. Excuse me? Let's look at this quote. It says that life here and now, in spite of the tragedy of sin, is nevertheless something worthwhile, and therefore all the efforts to make it better are also worthwhile, all the true values of human life will be preserved and carried over into the coming kingdom. Nothing worthwhile will be lost. So where you have great artistic triumph, where you have great technological triumphs, Christ, when he comes again, isn't going to make culture for us. Man makes culture. Jesus isn't going to do it. He's not going to write the music. He's not going to paint the paintings. He's not going to do all these things. That's not his job. That's the human race's job. His job is to save the human race and set up an environment in which all these things can come to fruition. But he's not going to do the planting of the vineyards. He's not going to do the writing of the music. He's not going to do all the building of the buildings. He's not going to do all the technology. That's us. And so where you have these great advances, they, are, they perpetuate into the millennium and rise and really become productive in that area. So these kinds of productions in this age before the millennium are not castaways. It's not something that's just going to be chucked in a junk pile because the kingdom came. There's a continuity in here from one age to the next. And that's what McLean did. And he pointed this out 30 years ago. And we still have people who just don't get it. Okay, third point. Evil will not be reduced greatly before Christ's return. Point there is you have pessimistic passages in the scriptures. And there's a whole list of them. We need not go into those. If you're familiar with the New Testament at all, you know about them. Last days, men, scoffers come, etc., etc. Okay. Final paragraph under premillennialism here. If evil is to be gradually suppressed, and who are the people that say it, it will be 
Not the Amil so much, the post-mill, right? Because he's got to have a kingdom before Jesus gets here. He's got to get better and better in order to get good enough to have Jesus come back to it. If evil is to be gradually suppressed, as post-millennials insist, it's hard to find any place in history where the process has already begun. Bentner, a post-millennial spokesman, admits, on post-millennial ground, it, is har it hardly seems that even in the most advanced nations on earth we have anything that is worthy of being called more than an early dawn of the millennium. He wrote that, by the way, 40 years ago. Imagine if he was around today. In fact, in those areas of the world where Christianity in the past had great influence, such as North Africa and New England, and where it was once, and where it was once rejected, it has never come back again. Isn't it remarkable? If you look at church history, where Christianity has flourished and has been rejected, it has never come back again. North Africa, you can count the Christians on one hand, is still living in North Africa. In New England, it is a horrible place. You talk to men who are trying to teach the Word of God in New England, and they'll tell you it's about as fruitful as the stones that come out of the ground every spring. Terrible place to minister the Word of God. So, this was the place where the Puritans had theology all over the place. But it, they turned, the population in that area turned against, against it. So, okay, have it your way. Amillennialism. Amillennialism, as we saw in those charts, doesn't believe that there really is a kingdom prior to Jesus. And therefore, he comes. This is Jesus' return. This is eternity. This is the church age. There is one second advent. It's not split up into pieces. That's amillennialism. Amillennialism started basically in Jewish history, down the bottom, page 6. It started with a spiritualized hermeneutic, that is, an allegorical method of interpreting passages like Isaiah 65. What we just read in Isaiah 65 was viewed by these guys as a poetic, nice thing. But it's ideal. The lamb really, literally, isn't going to lie down with a lion. And the wolf is not going to sleep with him. They're going to still be eating each other. So that's just a poetic picture to give hope. Um, on the top of page 7, I give you Philo's quote, uh, the, the description of what Philo did, just so you can get an idea. The second paragraph of that quote some of this method is sound, for there are allegorical and figurative elements in Scripture, but most of it led to the fantastic and absurd. For example, Abraham's trek to Palestine is really the story of a Stoic philosopher who leaves Chaldea, the sensual understanding, and stops in Haran, which means holes, which signify the emptiness of knowing things by holes, that is, by the senses. When he becomes Abraham, he becomes truly an enlightened philosopher. To marry Sarah is to marry abstract wisdom. You see what's, what they're doing to the text? They're taking a story of an actual man, an actual wife, and an actual journey, but they're saying that's all surface knowledge. It's, it's something deeper, more profound underneath all this. So there's, there's that kind of hermeneutic. Now, in Christian history, you have Origen and Augustine, the people that I mentioned in the previous thing. And what happened was, if you look on that first paragraph, last sentence, right after footnote 20, Unfortunately, with this transfer of Old Testament prophecies from a relationship to Israel, please note this sentence, a transfer of Old Testament prophecies from a relationship to Israel to a relationship with a church, 
a subtle form of anti-Semitism became implicit in Christian theology. Just Jewish historian Ben Sasson observes this. He says, Christianity claimed ownership of what it regarded as its holy land. By the way, in church history, what happened when the church held that view? When the church bought in to the fact that the land of Israel was theirs, what did that lead to that we all know about in church history? The Crusades. See? Now you know about what motivated those people. Ah, millennialists, see? See the idea at work? Had a big effect, didn't it? The, those Muslims, they're taking over our land. Our land. Not Israel's land, the church's land. This transfer of Old Testament prophecies from a relationship to Israel to a relationship with the church, a subtle form of anti-Semitism became implicit. Christianity claimed ownership of what it regards as its land by virtue of the Jewish past of which it claimed to be heir. So the church now is the heir of Jewish prophecies. Now there's a degree in which that is true and we'll have to sort this out. The Christian message based itself on the premise that with the destruction of Jerusalem and rejection of the Jewish people by the Lord, the entire covenant, including the promise of the land of Israel, became vested in Christendom. Now does it seem to click with you what's going on here in church history? Do you see now why premillennialism, amillennialism, this is not some random discussion here. This is quite central to the identity of the church and the identity of Israel. Amillennialism was carried on by the reformers from Augustine, so today it's the majority view. Sadly, the associated persecution of Jews under Romanism during Middle Ages continued under the Protestants. In his latter days, Martin Luther became very anti-Semitic advocating arson attacks against synagogues and Jewish homes, assaults against rabbis, and confiscation of Jewish silver and gold. Nazism tragically built upon this German anti-Semitism. So, see what happens. Now, there have been godly men who are all millennialists, and I list them there. Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper was a Dutchman. Very interesting man. If you ever get a chance to read... And you know what else he did? He became the prime minister of a nation in Europe, the Netherlands. 19, right around the turn of the century, this guy headed up Holland. He was their prime minister. Amazing situation in history. Very, not very well liked by a lot of the Dutch because they consider him a religious nut that somehow got to be president of their country. But he was a formidable intellect. And they didn't like him, but they didn't dare debate him either because he was a brilliant man and he could face him down. So he, uh, he, he was part of an interesting movement of Christians in politics in Northern Europe. Um, so those are the things and, 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 those, and amillennialism has become an adopted part. I note this part because it is it's interesting. Premillennialism, people say, you know, they'll walk into a, ch a church like ours or like some of the other churches around here and they'll see that in the doctrinal statement, there's a statement there about premillennialism, you know, believe premillennialism, and you'll get a reaction sometimes, well, I don't think that, that a church should be taking a stand in their creed on, on eschatology. I think that's just premature. I mean, I, that's closed-minded. Look here. Amillennialism has become an accepted part of the official creeds of 
the Missouri Synod of the Lutheran Church, the Christian Reformed Church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and unofficially it dominates most Baptist and Church of Christ circles. So it's not true that eschatology, the pre-mills, are the only one that put their premillennialism in an eschatological doctrinal state. Features. Okay, the features are basically that the Bible does point to things. I want to talk, uh, turn, if you will, to Galatians 3.25. There's a good passage. This is what these guys say and point to, that they're right, they say. And they say that we're not just interpreting the Bible randomly. Look at this. Galatians 3.25. They say that now faith has come, you're no longer under a tutor. There's the transfer, they argue. See? The Bible's saying this is a transfer. Faith has come, you're no longer under a tutor, the Mosaic Law. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ. Then, if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So therefore, they say, what's your problem? It says right there, we're heirs of the Abrahamic promises. And we're that way, when we're not Jewish, we're there because we trust in Christ. So that's one of the one of the points that's being made in this argument. Why do you make why do you insist on this Jewish Gentile Christian difference when the Bible doesn't do that, they say in the New Testament? Let's go to Hebrews twelve. Just trying to give you a, a flavor of the arguments. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, they say, see, here's a, here's a New Testament author. They love the epistle of Hebrews. This is the camping ground for all our mills. And they say, you have come to Mount Zion. Have we come to Mount Zion literally? No. We come spiritually in Christ. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, church of the firstborn. So what they're arguing there is that there's a case in, in, in a structured New Testament theologically heavy passage where a spiritualization is happening, a spiritual Mount Zion. Furthermore, if you look on the bottom of page 7, another argument that is used is that allegorical method is the only possible method that can be used with prophecies concerning long vanquished nations like Assyria, Moab, Ammon, Edom, and Philistia. Such nations no longer literally exist. So either the prophecies are irrelevant or you have to spiritualize them. Turning over in page 8, it says, the exact features of amillennialism are hard to define because most amillennial writers are anti-Keliastic. In other words, you read most amillennials, it gets back to that figure, figure one that I showed you. Remember I said that amillennialism and, and uh, postmillennialism look the same? They basically don't want a millennium. They just want continuity, they say, between the old and the new. You people, you pre-mills, you're always fracturing the Bible up into pieces. And we want continuity here, development. And so they tend not to develop their own system. That's why Dr. Charles Feinberg, who was a premillennial Hebrew Christian, by the way, 
You know, he used to do in seminary class, I was told. This guy, when he taught at Dallas Seminary, he, used to, he trained to be a rabbi. And this guy knew Hebrew coming out backwards and forwards. And he used to terrorize all the students in the class because you couldn't pass Dr. Feinberg's course unless you really knew your Hebrew. Now, today, nobody cares about Hebrew. I mean, we can hardly get the Greek known, leave alone Greek and Hebrew. Whew, that's heavy. But back in Charles Feinberg's day, there was a lot of discipline in the classroom, and he insisted that any guy who was going to teach the Word of God was going to know Hebrew, or he was going to flunk the, flunk, flunk the course. But anyway, Feinberg said, this is the amillennial method, to raise as many questions as possible, but at the same time to build no system of one's own. Well, let's look at what it is. Let's go to the premillennial pre text. If you look down in the, in the, in the below Christ's return in history, you see that, that paragraph? I want you to follow with me Jay Adams. Jay Adams is an amillennialist at this point, and I want you to see how he handles Revelation 19 and 20. So you can see for yourself. The key premillennial proof text, Revelation 19:20, is handled by all males in a variety of ways. Those who take the passage as a straight chronological sequence interpret Revelation 19 not as the second advent of Christ, but as a spiritual victory through the church. Turn to Revelation 19 for a moment. We were in Revelation 20 a few minutes ago, but before that passage about Satan being bound and the saints ruling for a thousand years, in, in Revelation 19, prior to that, you have Christ on a white horse. Remember that passage? And um, he comes dipped in blood. And if you look at uh, verse 11... I saw heaven opened, a white horse. He who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes are a flame of fire upon his head are many diadems. He has a name written upon him which no man knows except himself. And so on. It goes about the armies. In verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the wine place of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. By the way, who was the songwriter who took that passage of Scripture and applied it to one of the hymns that we sing all the time? Uh, the, I forgot her name, but she wrote uh, Battle Hymn of the Republic. And the text for Battle Hymn of the Republic came out of this, and she applied this text to the Civil War, which tells you what was her eschatology. Okay? Now you know something about that. Battle Hymn of the Republic, written by an amillennialist. So she quotes verse 15 in that song. And on his robe and on his thighs a name written. So... What about that? We, pre-males, will take that as the second advent of Christ. Well, if that is, then that puts Christ on earth before the thousand years. So the amillennials has to say, wait a minute, that can't be. So let's see if we've got another interpretation for this 19 pound. They come up with a, at first glance, it looks like a pretty good interpretation of Revelation 19. Here's what he says. That this passage does not describe a physical coming such as the second advent, is apparent from at least two facts. First, Christ is nowhere else said to return upon a horse. He did not ascend this way, and he is to return as he ascended. The horse was the emblem of war. That is its emblematic purpose here. See, emblematic purpose. This is a, a non-literal interpretation of the passage. Secondly, the conflict described here is spiritual, a battle waged and won by the word of God which we would affirm, yeah, it's a spiritual battle going on. Once before, a judgment coming employed sword of mouth destruction was con contemplated in Revelation 2.12. That passage can't be confused with the second coming either. 
So Revelation 19, in this view, depicts a spiritual victory Christ wins through His church by His Word. Revelation 20 then portrays the actual second advent of Christ according to this view. Not all millennials treat it this way. They don't all treat 19 and 20 chronologically. Scholars such as Louis Burkhoff, William Hendrickson, and all of Alice take the 19th chapter as referring to the second advent, then consider the 20th chapter as a recapitulation. So they have various ways of handling Revelation 19 and 20. Second point of amillennialism. The kingdom of God will not triumph over human culture. They agree with us, with the premillennialist, that you can't find evidence in Scripture that prior to Christ's return, you're going to have a bettering and a bettering and a bettering of the world. But they adhere to a spiritual interpretation they say can be biblically proven by comparing Hebrews 12.22 with Isaiah 2. Remember Hebrews 12.22, the passage we just went to? We have come to Mount Zion. And Isaiah 2 is talking about Mount Zion, prophetically, in the time of the kingdom. So they say that Isaiah 2, following the hint of Hebrews, ought to be interpreted not as a literal world dictatorship of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth, but rather should just be a picture of the church. That's what's going on in the church age. Um, page 9. It says, Spiritualization of Golden uh, Age prophecies is precisely what Jesus did, they claim, in Revelation thir- and Matthew 13. Let's conclude by turning to Matthew 13. So they're citing the Lord Jesus' explanation for what the nature of the kingdom. Now, Revelation, um, Matthew 13 is critical because that's halfway through the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And it was at this point when he changed his tune. And it's very evident when you read the four Gospels that halfway through his ministry, he began to change things a little bit. So the amillennialist says, Aha! Look at this. In Matthew 13, verse 11... Jesus says this. He says, He answered and He said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, the unbelievers, it has not been granted. And their position is that what the Lord Jesus is doing here is He's presenting truth about what the kingdom of the Old Testament really is. And getting rid of carnal, Jewish, encrustments, of what that kingdom was and to the spiritual heart of things. That's what Jesus is doing. So they're saying the Lord took his disciples aside to correct an erroneous belief that the coming kingdom would be material and physical. The real nature of the promised kingdom is spiritual and the promises are being fulfilled by Christ and the church and so forth. And third point, evil will not be reduced before Christ's return, which they agree with us and that sort of thing. Now, I love that Jay Adams' comment on that second, that first paragraph after page three, of item three, evil will not be reduced. See a footnote 26. Great quote. Uh, Dr. Adams was a professional counselor. The sin and consequent problems among Christians prove that such a society would be far from golden. At another point, Adams says, as an amillennialist, he says, against the postmillennialist, he says, anyone who has been in Christian ministry more than five and a half minutes understands that you can't have a kingdom on this earth without Christ present physically. So, th- th- this gives you some sort of a flavor for amillennialism. And I want to conclude with that last paragraph. 
Amillennialism has one additional problem at this point that premillennialism does not, and that concerns the binding of Satan. Remember, that was in the passage. That was in that Revelation 20. So what do they do with the binding of Satan? If Revelation 20 refers to the church age, which it must in their view, if Revelation 20 refers to the church age and not to a future millennium, then in what sense is Satan bound today? Amillennialists reply that this binding is the same kind of binding that is mentioned in Matthew 12 and is implied in 2 Corinthians. That is, the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that's how they interpret that section of Satan being bound. That the church binds Satan by virtue of the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. All right. So tonight we've gone through two views. Next time we'll go through postmillennialism. Didn't make it tonight, but that's all right. And um, then we're going to go into how we resolve the controversy. So I want to lead you through postmillennialism. You haven't, well, you haven't because we just handed them out. But um, postmillennialism is something coming on strong right now, believe it or not. Uh, postmillennialism, when I studied theology back 30 years ago, was considered to be kind of a museum piece. And you studied it like a, a doctor studies uh, what the medicine men did in 1800. Well, things have changed in the last 20, the last 10 years. There's some strong emphasis on this, and we want to look at it carefully. It has a lot to do with American politics. And uh, post-millennialism inside the evangelical camp is getting to be quite a formidable force. Um, it plays a role in some of the, as I said, in some of the conflicts in politics, and we want to just pay attention to that, look at it. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. We thank you for your word that is truth. And we ask that you would give discernment to us that we can follow you and obey you through clearly understanding your scripture. In Christ's name, amen. Obviously, there's mortality there. He's not talking about resurrection. And the idea of the resurrection is not very well covered in the Old Testament, frankly. Um, Daniel is the only one who specifically mentions resurrection. At, uh, well, no, very few passages in the Old Testament deal directly with, with resurrection. If you look carefully in the Gospels, when Jesus goes to teach the resurrection, he does so with a verb in the covenant. He doesn't, he doesn't refer to an Old Testament picture of resurrection. Um, so, what do you do with the Old Testament prophets who see this coming kingdom in mortal history and refer to it as the new heavens and new earth? Versus in the book of Revelation, when the old heavens and the old earth have passed away and the new one is all new. And that's one of the great complexities of this issue. This is why, I mean, this is why there's divisions among good Christians on these issues. If not, there's, I think there's a solution to the problem, and I think the solution comes about the fact that you have to interpret how that new heavens and new earth expression is used in co local context. Um, remember, 
that there's a progression in Scripture of understanding that, um, well, let's take uh, moving away from heaven and earth just for a moment. Let's take the word king and think about how does the word king of Israel, how is that understood in Moses' day? Remember in the Old Testament law code, remember I brought one back 50 years ago, I brought in Rex, Rex and Rutherford, and I said that he borrowed from the Mosaic law code, and what did he do? He had the king under the law. That was his whole argument. That was what had such profound effect in English political thought and American political thought. Nobody, you know, every time you learn about American history, I swear, they talk, bring up Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine was a tourist. He came here after the whole independence movement and got started. It had nothing to do with um, The ideas of American independence came out of Puritan thought. And Samuel Rutherford was one of those. Anyway, Rutherford wrote that the king was under the law. It was the law over the king. And he used the idea of the king in Mosaic times. Mosaic. And what was the idea of the king in Moses? Did they have a king? No. No king. Who was the king? God was the king. But strangely, in the Mosaic law, there's provisions to handle the king. Remember that passage? Revelation 17. And in that passage, what does it say? You're going to do. You're going to. You're going to want a king. It's not sounding very enthusiastic. It's saying, well, someday you guys will want a king, and when you want a king, all right. I'll let you have one, but it's going to be my kind of thing, not your kind of thing. Now, what a thrilling outlook that looks like. Because that's the first picture you get a king. Then you go on in the Old Testament, and finally you get a king. Ah, oh, what does he turn into? Saul. Then we're going to knock out Saul, we're going to have David. There's our man. Now that's the anointed Messiah. And his balloon collapsed. And... Then you have one king after another, and you get Ahabs and all kinds of things. Until finally God said, that's it. Remember, he ended the dynasty through Solomon, chopped it off. The righteous child is. You're not going to have any more kings out of that line. So then, then, so then you go into the New Testament, and you're looking around for a king again. Well, you've been prepared by all that previous history, that now you realize that the word king means something more than what you thought it meant if you had lived in Moses' time. In Moses' time, if you had read just Deuteronomy 17, think of it more as a tribal leader. And then you got thinking, well, gee, you know, after the judges period, we really do need a king because we're such cloudy people. We need a strong leader. So now the king advances from a mere tribal leader until he becomes a strong leader over the whole nation, nationally. Oh, so now what's happened to the word king? We've gotten bigger. Now we come to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, Jesus professes to be king, and everybody laughs at him. Why are they laughing at him? Because they're saying that this guy can't be king. I mean, crying out loud, the guy comes from the slums in northern Israel, and he's a carpenter. He's a poor boy. doesn't know royalty. He is not in the Jerusalem. I mean, he's not inside the beltway around Jerusalem here. This guy can't rule anything. So, what kind of a candidate is he? And, that, and it's a real crucial thing that comes up in the New Testament. 
So, make a long story short, as you go through the New Testament, you can be puzzled. Because you've got to come to grips with the fact that Jesus goes out of his way to avoid presenting himself as Mr. Glamorous King. Why is he doing that? Something's operating here. A theology of the king is operating in the background. And yet, you know that he doesn't permanently throw that role out for himself because what does he say in Matthew 23, 24, and 25 when he comes back? When I come back, it's going to be a ripping time. And you think I, I'm a gentle man. Wait, you see what's going to happen when I come back again. You know, I've got real ring furniture around here. So, so now what happens? That proves that Jesus had not thrown out that idea of him. It just proves there's another theme going on. Now, let's tie that all together. We've watched the word king get more and more content here as we go through the Bible. This is why I keep saying we've got to read the Bible. How? Historical. In sequence. You can't plow into the New Testament and say, oh, king, huh? I understand that. No, you don't understand that. I can't understand that until I share the experience of God's people through the centuries, which he's recorded for me, so I can develop my vocabulary and get my thoughts straightened out and understand what is going on. So, similarly, it was what happening, to get back to Debbie's question, the heavens and new heavens and new earth, that is an idea itself that gets bigger and bigger and bigger through time. And you can watch that in the Bible. And it, it shows up sometimes in the Psalms, it shows up in Isaiah, it shows up in 2 Peter 3 passage. Um, and all I can say at this point is that you've got to trace the development of the parent. And you, you get screwed up real fast if you pick out in the progress of Revelation what was going on back here in the mid-Old Testament and what's presented here in the New Testament. Say, ooh, this doesn't fit. Well, the same thing. The king, concept of king in Jesus' day doesn't fit what you see in Deuteronomy 17 in one sense. In another sense it does because it's not a direct conflict with Deuteronomy 17. Those controls in Deuteronomy 17 still apply to this king. So the Bible never conflicts with itself, it just keeps adding on. So, so now, see, now I've kind of get, letting the cat out of the bag as far as how you handle the, the land problems. What we're going to find as we go on here is that, is the land the land? Yeah. Well then, why is it that we have kind of a non-land thing going on in the Bible? Where's the land in the, the church? In the Testament? Something? Never once, never once connected to the church, in spite of all the crusades and the church inheriting the covenant. You can't find that in the Testament. It's just an infant. All those crusades, all because of an infant. So, what do we do with the land? Well, we have to be careful that however we connect the church off here in the future, we don't undermine the truth of the first occurrence of the land, which is a physical land and a specific piece of real estate and a specific location. That can never change. So whatever we do over here has got to be connected to what was going on back here. Otherwise, we get chaos in the scriptures. And it's precisely this kind of thing where people we become Christians and, and the guy or the gal that led you to the Lord uh, led you to the Lord led me to the Lord through the New Testament so where's your loyalty first? 
from the New Testament. We don't have anything about the Old Testament. I mean, how many people were led to the Lord by the Old Testament at one time? Um, what was it? How, Mike, did you become a Christian? Through preaching? In Cain? Through Exodus? Yeah. Well, he's an unusual cat. Um, but most people are led to the Lord through, through the New Testament. So you naturally gravitate that way and you avoid the Old Testament. And it's easy to do because most preachers don't bother with it too hard to study. And so, therefore, we don't get that background. So all your life you go on and, and come, come up with these ideas like our future is in heaven. It's like we're floating somewhere. But in the, in the book of Revelation, where is the new Jerusalem? Back on planet Earth? So how do we get we're floating between Mars and Jupiter somewhere? Where is that coming from? That's coming out of the fact that we keep reading about heaven, 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 heaven. Never read about Earth. It's there. And the book of Revelation utilizes a lot of those prophecies of the Old Testament. So the rule we're going to find as we move on here is prophecy becomes bigger, more detailed, more embellished with time. But the embellishment with time never refutes the details when it was first given. So you're never wrong in saying the king was a king out of the Jewish tribe and so forth. Now later on, we're going to see he's the God-man. He's not only human, he's God. Where's that in Deuteronomy 17? Okay, it's not there, but isn't Deuteronomy 17 still true of Jesus? Yes, it is. So, all of this kingdom business, has got to fit what we learn in the Old Testament. It's got to be that. Israel has got to be tied into it. The land has got to be tied into it. Jerusalem has got to be tied into it. The earth has to be tied into it. All that has to be true or we've refuted the Old Testament. So you can't compete and force the New Testament to compete against the Old. It's got to be a continuum. The problem is how do you do that? And that's why we have these different views. So the amillennial position that we saw tonight, the amillennial position basically wrenches, it tries to get continuity by wrenching the kingdom away from Israel and letting it become the inheritance of the church. And it uses the verses that we just showed you, that we have seed of Abraham. Okay? That's the very language of the Abrahamic covenant, seed of Abraham. So how we see the Abraham? Not to see the Abraham because we're physically related to Abraham, spiritually related. So we're spiritual seed of Abraham. So if we're spiritual seed of Abraham, why can't we have a spiritual land and see how the thing can go? And that develops. And that's how you get the, the rise of Amalekah. The problem with that view is, is that the way it was understood back there? Now, you have to be careful. They could have misunderstood it back there. But the elements that they did know for sure can't be refuted. Maybe an easier example would be, let's take the first prophecy ever given in history and watch it, because it's easy to see. It's a simple story. No detail, no complexity to it. After Eve had her first son, what did she think? She said, she named him Cain, which is a Hebrew verb to become established. And she says, I've gotten a man. And, and the Hebrew is kind of funny there. It can be almost translated. I've gotten a man, the, the Lord. And what had God said 
to her at the, at the fall, said, you're the mother of all life. Well, Eve had her first son. That was the first human being ever born. Think of that. She and Adam weren't born. So here we have an interesting thing. The first human being ever to be born is Cain. So Eve has never seen a birth before. I mean, it's the first time she's ever gone through this. So here she is. She has a baby. And she looks at him and she says, that must be the fulfillment of the promise. God said, I'm going to be mother of all life. Now, is it wrong for her to apply that to him? Was she the mother of all? Was that living? Was, was that a part of the human race? Yes. Is that a person for whom Christ died? Yes. So, was she wrong in thinking of him as part of the, part of the fulfillment of the prophecy that she should be mother of all life? No. He, he's part and part, but he's not the only part of the fulfillment. The whole human race is the fulfillment of that. And then in a pure form, she's the mother of all life in the sense that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And that in, in God's sovereign, magnificent way, he's going to save us through ourselves. Not through angels, not through animals, not through trees. It's going to be through the human race that fell. God will use that tool to save itself. And that's the incarnation that we're going to see. But Eve didn't have a clue about the myriad of death in what God spoke to her. But what she did see when she saw her first baby son was true. So let this be an example as we try to thread our way through this. That if we were Old Testament believers and we would honestly see ourselves as going to be the heirs of Abraham, and this land here physically is going to be part of the kingdom. That can't be wrong. So however we interpret what comes, it may have much more detail to it, but it can't refute that first part. It has to hold on to it. And that's the rule we're going to use in all All those covenants that we study, they've got to be true. When you come to the New Testament, for example, here's, here's that channel answer. Remember we said last year there were several covenants. What was the last one in covenant? Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and worldwide blessing. The land part of the Abrahamic covenant was amplified by another covenant called the Palestinian covenant. The seed covenant was expanded in another covenant, real quick, the Davidic covenant. The worldwide blessing covenant was expanded in the Old Testament under the new covenant of Jeremiah. And if you remember when I taught that, I said at the time, be very careful, folks, who are the parties to the new covenant? Israel, right? Is given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Jeremiah. Well, what are we doing in it? How's the church doing? See, that's all related, all tied in here. However the church is related to the New Covenant, it can't refute the original Jeremiah passage. You can't go backwards from the new to the old and totally change the whole old time. Well, those people, see, they didn't really understand it. Now, we know how to, we know what the New Covenant is. Why, wow, that's the relationship between the Lord and the church. Those poor people just didn't have it back there. Well, you can't work that way. You can't go backwards. You've got to go forward. So, the New Covenant is anchored to the house of Judah and the house of Israel. 
and however we're related to it, got to be through that. You can argue forever on the details of it, but you can't argue against the original in situ arrangement, that, that environment in which that prophecy is and do justice to the text. So that's where we're going. That's the concept. And you'll see, uh, hopefully, next week, uh, after we get through the post-millennials, that's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to show you, not getting into all the details that we can uh, on Thursday night and stuff. This is a whole, whole study. But what we can do is I can show you how you go about thinking through a solution to the problem. One of the things that we have to deal with that we talked about in the Old Testament when I went through all those covenants, what did I say had to be true? You make a deal with somebody and it's written down. How do you interpret the legal document? You don't spiritualize it. You don't allegorize it. Why? Because a document has to, has to within itself, has its control. If I write a contract, the contract has to be self-interpreted. If it isn't, then either party can load it. And then it breaks down the whole concept of the covenant. Well, we have a covenant in the first place to monitor behavior of the parties to the covenant. Well, if you're going to have what a greasy hermeneutic, then I mean, you might as well not even write the covenant because it can be redefined by either party. So you see, that's what we're talking about. You're under the control. You can think of a business contract. There's a contract on your house, contract on your car, contract on an appliance, anything. When you buy and you sign your name on the dotted line, that's not greasy. That's a specific thing. So, same principle in the Bible. And that's what we're going to go back to. Ultimately, we're going to say, the notes handed out tonight, to say, we're moving clo closer and closer to the hermeneutic. Principle of how you read the text. That's got to be there. And all of Well, um, we're running out of time, but the, the new nature issue uh, that Wade has raised, that really comes up with a church. It's not revealed very carefully in the Old. The only thing you have in the Old Testament is the circumcision of the heart. They knew something like this because the Holy Spirit wanted them to realize the Holy Spirit does something in every person's heart. And in the language of the Old Testament, it doesn't call it regeneration, it calls it spiritual circumcision. And they were, they were clear that there was a, there's something going on. From the moment of the exodus, God says, if these people don't circumcise their heart, you can forget everything. So there's, there's something going on in the side. Just one thing, it's not developed. And it's developed, developed, and developed, and developed. And then finally, of course, at the resurrection, um, that's where everybody's locked in to the every person is. At resurrection time, uh, there is no more sin for the people who are saved, and there is no more righteousness for the people who go to hell. But only, apparently, it was resolved so that there was no 
that angels today aren't in danger of falling or falling. Whatever happened, it's like, remember I used the illustration of cement and water? Mix it through together and get concrete. And the concrete gets fixed at the resurrection. Now, how you work that with will, you're going to see it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you're going to, one of the doctrines you're going to get into is the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. And, and that, that's what starts defining it. So I don't want to get into it before I can. That's time's up. Yeah. Okay. Time's up.